0: Welcome to the RSA events podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and
1: debate.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor, I'm Chief Executive at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's RSA online event. If you'd like to join the conversation about the event, you're welcome to do so on Twitter. The hashtag is RSA democracy, or you can join in our YouTube chat. Now I'm particularly delighted to have the chance to talk today with a brilliant panel of experts and practitioners in the field of participatory democracy. It's a topic that's really important to us at the RSA. So let me briefly introduce uh, our distinguished panel before we get started. Claudia Schwaletz is leading the OECD's work on citizen participation. She's the co-author of the OECD's new report, Innovative Citizen Participation and New Democratic Institutions, Catching the Deliberative Wave. And we'll be exploring some of the findings in that report today. Claudia is a leading expert in innovative democratic approaches. She's authored two books about how to transform our decision-making processes. Panthea Lee is Executive Director at Reboot, dedicated to building coalitions that engage communities, activists, and institutions across the board to address complex social challenges. Pantsia has pioneered these multi-stakeholder processes in over 30 countries, powering bold, inclusive efforts to protect human rights defenders, to tackle public sector corruption, and to reform leading international institutions. Graham Smith, is professor of Politics and Director of the Centre for the Study of Democracy at the University of Westminster, where he specialises in democratic innovation. He's Chair of the Foundation for Democracy and Sustainable Development, and he's written and spoken widely on public participation in political decision-making, with particular reference to climate issues. We've asked Claudia, Panthea, and Graham to join us today to reflect on the challenges and opportunities for active democracy, at a time when the efforts to tackle many of our biggest problems, from climate change to the pandemic we're living through, are hampered by political deadlock and polarization. So, we're looking forward to hearing from you all, and we're gonna begin with Claudia outlining the findings from the OECD's recent report on innovative citizen participation. Over to you, Claudia.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Matthew, uh, for that introduction. I'm just going to share my screen for a PowerPoint here. So thank you very much, Matthew, for for that introduction. Uh, It's really a pleasure to to be here today for this London launch event, in a way, of the OECD report, Innovative Citizen Participation and New Democratic Institutions Catching the Deliberative Wave. Uh, My name is Claudia Tualiz, and I'm leading the OECD's area of work on innovative citizen participation within the Open Government Unit. And I'm going to share with you some of the key findings from this report, and, and I'm looking forward to discussing how this connects to that broader picture about the future of democracy, active democracy in this time of emergency, uh, and these connections between participatory and and deliberative uh, approaches as well. But before I, I dive into some of the findings, I'm going to take 30 seconds to define what I'm talking about here, because in this report, we talk about representative deliberative processes. There are 289 examples of them, of processes like citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries, consensus conferences, and so on. And what all of these have in common are a few specific criteria. Uh, First of all, that there's a small representative group at the core of them. This group reflects societal diversity, and they have a specific task, which is to develop recommendations on a specific public problem. They have time to deliberate, which means they have access to diverse and broad information and they're able to weigh arguments and consider a diversity of perspectives with the explicit aim of trying to find common ground and develop collective and informed recommendations for that public authority on the issue. So to make this sound a bit abstract, let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. So here on on the screen, I'm showing you a picture of the Citizens' Reference Panel on Pharmacare in Canada, which was brought together in 2016. Here you see 35 Canadians from across the country who were brought together for five full days to hear from different experts, to talk to one another and to ultimately come up with some concrete recommendations on how to improve access to prescription drugs. Another example, which is a bit more recent and some in Europe especially might be more familiar with, is the French Citizens Convention on Climate. Uh, So here I have an image of the 150 participants of this convention randomly selected and then stratified to be representative of the broader population of France. They met numerous times between October 2019 and June 2020 to develop concrete recommendations to the French government on how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030 in comparison to 1990 levels, uh, but in a way that is socially just. And so in June, they delivered their recommendations to the government, and it's definitely something to follow because there's yet to be a concrete response on those yet. But what all of these, what those two examples, and all of the 289 examples in this OECD study have in common, are three criteria. So the first is representativeness, which means that the people who participate, it's not open to anybody. It's a random sample of people who are are chosen to be broadly representative of the wider community. The second criteria is deliberation. Now, this is something that I was, as I was explaining, requires weighing evidence, requires having the time to contemplate it, to weigh different arguments. So it's something that requires time, which means that we, in our study, operationalized it as a minimum of one full day of face-to-face meetings. And the third criteria being impact. So these 289 examples were all commissioned by a public authority that then has the, the remit to be able to respond to and act on those recommendations. Now, we talk about the deliberative wave in the title of this report for a few reasons, but one has been that it's really been something once we looked into the data, we found that it's been really building over time the momentum of public authorities taking a more deliberative approach to how they're engaging citizens and involving citizens in their public decision-making. So our earliest examples that meet these three criteria are from 1986. And we saw that there was an initial first kind of wave in the late 90s early 2000s and since about 2010 the momentum has really been been building and what isn't even shown on this graph here is that we had to stop our data collection in October 2019 because eventually we had to to stop collecting and start analysing this data to actually write the report but because we could have gone, gone on and on forever is what I'm trying to say that there were another 30 to 40 processes that were already underway or announced at that time which means the 2019 Um, point on the graph really would be off the charts if we had been able to add all of those uh, examples in as well. And we found that this has been a phenomenon happening in many different countries. So we weren't looking just in the OECD, though we found that almost all of them, 282 out of 289 examples come from OECD countries, uh, but from a wide diversity of them, from Germany on Australia, Canada and Denmark, but also Italy, Estonia, Poland, um, Japan. There's really been a wide diversity of practices across different countries um, around the world in, in this kind of approach. And we were looking not just at the national level of government, but really looking across different different levels. We found that around half of the examples in this report are at the local level. 30% at the regional state level, 15% at the national federal level, and 3% at the international level. So referring to examples, for instance, at the EU level. Uh, But I do want to also caveat a little bit that the examples at the regional state level mostly come from Canada and Australia, which are two very federal countries. And most of the issues tackled there at that level would have been national level issues in Europe. Now, I say this because I think sometimes there's a little bit of a common myth that public deliberation is better for the local level or for smaller types of issues. But actually, we see, we've seen uh, in, in the empirical evidence that that's not necessarily the case, that there's really been a wide diversity of practices. We also tried to get a better sense of understanding of what kinds of policy questions have deliberative approaches been used for. Now the most common that we found were were issues around urban planning, health, environment, strategic planning and infrastructure, uh, but also a wide variety of other issues as you can see here ranging from taxation, family, culture, justice. Uh, Although In doing this research, what we noticed, though, was that a better way of thinking about whether a deliberative approach is actually appropriate or not, is to think rather about what type of problem is it. So we categorize three different types of dilemmas that deliberative processes are really well suited to address. The first being values-driven dilemmas, so even if a problem might seem technical at first, Often, it can be underpinned by more um, values-driven conflicts about what kind of society do we want. Uh, Secondly, are complex problems that require weighing different trade-offs. So they're not well-suited if there's really a binary set of issues or options on the table, or if there isn't really much room to maneuver. They're really there for those tricky, difficult, hard problems where... You have to identify where there might be some form of common ground um, to be able to move forward. And the third being long term questions that go beyond the short term incentives of elections. Now, I'm not going to go into this in too much depth now because of timing and I want to leave time for discussion, but I did want to mention that within this report, based on, on the back of all this empirical data, but also working together with an expert group of uh, practitioners, of uh, public servants and academics, we developed the OECD good practice principles because we did find that this is happening more and more often. And there's also a risk that if it's not done properly, that it can risk it can fuel greater disillusionment about the wider public, but it might not also necessarily result in recommendations or outputs that are useful for policymakers. So the aim of these good practice principles is really to try and, and provide um, policymakers with results that end up helping them, uh, but are also done in a way that can actually help um, strengthen public trust at the end of the day. And finally, the last thing that I'll mention here before we before I wrap up is that in, in doing this work at the OECD, we're not just trying to analyze all of these one-off ad hoc processes, but also thinking a bit more broadly about reimagining democratic institutions and looking at why and how to embed public deliberation so that it becomes uh, an ongoing and normal part of the way certain types of public decisions are taken. So the idea behind institutionalization is really um, considering different legal or regulatory changes that would make this an embedded part, uh, that would make deliberative practices an embedded part of how, how our democracies function regardless of political change. Now, why institutionalise? Why are we even thinking about this or talking about this? I do want to briefly mention this because I think it relates a lot to this broader conversation around the future of democracy and and what kind of democracies we want to to be living in. So there's five main reasons that I'll briefly cover. First being that I just outlined the kinds of problems that public deliberation is well suited for in a nutshell, the really, really, really tricky ones. So by institutionalizing the use of public deliberation for certain types of problems, it would allow public decision makers to take more of those kind of hard decisions. Additionally, by creating the infrastructure so that it becomes an ongoing part of things so that being able to randomly select citizens or have on tap people who know how to facilitate a a public meeting um, would allow public decision makers to also conduct deliberation more easily and less expensively. Thirdly, there's a lot of talk about trust these days. How to strengthen it? Um, I think that it's really when this becomes a more ongoing part of our democracies that the in- potential for enhancing public trust is really the strongest. It, I mean, we see that there's an impact very locally with the one-off processes, with the few people involved. But if it's going to be something that really has a bigger impact on on more of society, it's not going to be until there's, you know every one of us might know someone who's been involved in such a process and has played a more meaningful role in shaping public decisions affecting our lives, that that potential is really, really the strongest. So linked to that institutionalization, is also where the potential to enrich democracy is the strongest because it enhances it by expanding meaningful citizen participation to a much, much, much more diverse group of people than are typically involved through our, our electoral democratic institutions today. And finally, there's also the potential to strengthen the civic capacity of citizens and the, the democratic fitness of society more broadly, so to speak. So there's Quite a bit of emerging evidence which shows that the people who participate in such a deliberative process at the end of it have a much greater sense of agency, of political efficacy, of feeling like they're able to change things around them. So multiplying that impact on individuals participating in such a process through institutionalization um, can really strengthen our democracies much much further. Very briefly, in the report, we looked at three different ways that this has already been happening so far. The first has been by creating a permanent or ongoing structure for representative citizen deliberation. So what I mean by that is an an example um, from Ostbelgien, which is the German-speaking community of Belgium. Uh, So in, in this region, the parliament in February 2019 unanimously voted to set up this new democratic institution called the Citizens Council, which is made up of 24 randomly selected citizens who have an agenda setting role. It's up to them to decide what are the one to three issues every year that should be put to a citizens panel. And each of these citizens panels is also a deliberative process with a, a group of randomly selected citizens who have the time and resources to develop Recommendations that then go to the Parliament about what to do on that issue. And within the legislation, there's now a requirement for the Parliament to have at least two debates about those recommendations. So we've seen the first citizens panel, which the Citizens Council decided would be on how to improve the, um, the working conditions of people in healthcare, which I personally think is very apt given they chose this topic back in the autumn of 2019 before we were facing the COVID crisis. So I think it's also a Example of you know, if you leave um, the onus on citizens to bring issues onto the table, they're, they're going to choose sensible things which they feel should be talked about more. But going back to, to these three, three approaches, so the, the second approach beyond the permanent structures uh, is to have requirements for organizing representative deliberative processes under certain conditions. So by that, I mean um, an example being, for instance, the Citizens Initiative Review in Oregon, which is the requirement to have a deliberative process before there's a ballot measure. Uh, that gets voted upon. Uh, Another example is the 2011 French law on bioethics, which requires that there's a a representative deliberative process as part of a wider participation um, engagement uh, program before any changes to laws on bioethics can be made. So these sorts of requirements. And the third uh, are being rules that allow citizens to demand a representative deliberative process on a specific issue. So we use this usually is in the form of a petition with enough signatures. Uh, usually we, we think of these things as you know signa, uh, petitions leading to a parliamentary debate or to a referendum. But here it's a bit of a mindset shift that. Uh, a petition could also lead to a citizens assembly or a citizens jury on a specific issue. Uh, so an example of this being in the Austrian state of Vorarlberg uh, in 2017, there were enough citizens that put together a petition to have a citizens council on how to how to use the the land the land use rights in their region. So I'm going to leave it there because I want to leave some some time for discussion, but I just want to leave you thinking that it's not just about these one-off. Uh, processes that can really change things, but thinking about how do we reimagine our democratic institutions for the future, and especially for a context like we're in today, where we're dealing with a lot of complexity, sometimes crisis situations. Um, I'm hoping that we can, yeah, we can discuss some of these questions, and that the report and and the data and findings we have in there provides a bit of for thought for that discussion as well. So thank you very much,
2: Claudia. That was. Uh... Fantastic, and um, you know you are preaching to the converted with me. Uh, I've been thinking about deliberation for a very, very long time, and I think what I found particularly inspiring uh, about your presentation is that I was talking to someone just the other day who said, "Well, isn't you know there's a lot of interest in deliberation right now, but you know we've seen this before, and it comes and goes." And you know if you're involved in policy, one of the critical tasks in policy or economics, come to that, is to distinguish between a cycle and a trend. And I am convinced by your presentation, uh, although I very much wanted to be convinced, that this is not another cycle of interest in deliberation and participation. This is a trend, an irreversible trend. And the question for countries, national administrations, local administrations, is not, well, can we wait until this enthusiasm passes, but how do we jump on board something which is going to really define... The future of decision making and uh, democratic engagement so brilliant wonderful work congratulations on it now um, i'm going to go i was going to go to pansy and then to graham i'm going to go to graham first because he's got a slightly dodgy connection and i want to get him while i I can still see him so graham i just in you know in a few minutes can you respond to what claudia has shared with us but also tell us a little bit about your own work in this area where i know you've been focusing particularly on the climate issue yeah, thank, thank you,
3: Matthew. and uh, Thanks, Claudia, for a great presentation um, and a really fantastic research project. Um, so I think what's really interesting about the presentation is, is where is where Claudia ended, which is actually at a point when she hasn't actually captured this kind of explosion that's happened in the last um, six to six to 12 months of assemblies, particularly around um, climate. Uh, and of course, she mentioned the French Convention. Uh, we also had the UK Climate Assembly, uh, both of which, I think, show us that citizens are willing and able to make incredibly thoughtful recommendations about issues that politician, where politicians fear to tread very often. Um, I think they're really impressive. We've also seen some quite, um, we've seen developments at the local level, a lot of local assemblies, and I think these are really interesting developments. My my one concern, I've got a number of concerns, but my, the, the the one that I think I would pick up because it reflects what you just said, Matthew, is I think public authorities are beginning to see this deliberative wave. And some of the really leading authorities are really embracing this. But for others, they don't know what to do. They run these assemblies because other people are running these assemblies, and they haven't actually reorientated their their own institution to be ready and responsive to it. So I think we're in a really strange situation at the moment where I would hazard to say that we actually know how to run these things pretty well. We've got a pretty good idea about how to run a good assembly, that we need a clear task, that we need time, that we need really careful governance to ensure that the information that citizens citizens are provided with is robust and and is diverse. So we we know how to do this. We know how to do a good assembly. The problem is what happens to the recommendations afterwards. And I think the work that we need to do as a community is no longer to show that we can do participation well, but actually to say what is a good authority that does participation. What what does a if you like what does a participatory public authority look like? And actually, that's the area where I've got less insight. But actually, for me, is the thing that's absolutely critical. Because from the work I've done, not just on, not just on citizens' assemblies, but on other forms of participation as well, I'm afraid what we see is cherry-picking. We see selective listening by the authority to pick on those things that it kind of already had an interest in, those things which aren't too expensive, those things that keep their existing political, um, their political interests and their political power in place. So I think for us, what we really need to do it is to think what a authority would look like, which would embed these things in its work in an everyday, in an everyday way. Claudia talks about institutionalisation. That isn't just having these things happen regularly. It's that they actually affect the work on a day-to-day basis of public authorities. Um, and, you know, that's where I still think we've got this deliberative wave. And I'm thinking about how to push the metaphor too far. But this deliberative wave actually has to crash into public authorities and actually get public authorities to work differently. Public authorities, as you well know, Matthew, are very functional. They've got, you know, diff- different, and um, they they're work-, they're work in their own silos. Citizens don't think in that way. The kinds of recommendations that citizens offer don't always map on well to public authorities. And so that's the challenge now. How do we link this kind of new, this new politics with this very sort of old, much older way of doing things? And, th- and that's the bit that I think, for me is the exciting bit, but I actually, you know, I think we're only on the starting point. We're, we're really, really only on the first steps of really understanding how, how that is to work.
2: I mean, it's gonna be really hard for me to chair this event because I am so fascinated by all of this. I'll, I'll try to broadly do what I'm supposed to be doing, but <laughs> listen, I'm not just chairing, I'm getting involved in this. Look, I completely agree with you, Graham. Um, uh, that is, I think, one of the challenges. Um, and, you know, I still find, when I talk to politicians, high levels of ignorance about deliberation. I mean, remarkably high levels of ignorance, given the evidence that Claudia has to share with us. Um, and then once they do understand it, quite a lot of resistance uh, uh, to it. I recently did an event with Andy Burnham, the chair uh, the mayor of Manchester. And I think you were there, Graham. And he, he kind of, he started off not understanding it, Then we explained it to him, and he said, I don't like it, and then we properly explained it, and he went, oh right, okay, maybe we'll do it. It's part, so I want to suggest two parts of this problem very briefly before I bring Pantheon. but one is that nuance is not easy in in our modern social media world, and the fact is it is nuanced. The, The point about deliberation, it is not an alternative to representative democracy, The decisions are not made in the deliberative process. There are recommendations and they come out. On the other hand, you can't just ignore them or cherry pick them because it completely undermines it. So the first problem, it seems, is just the nuance of saying, I will take this seriously even though I'm not necessarily going to abide by it. It's not a very complicated idea, is it? I will take this seriously even though I won't necessarily totally abide by it. But yet... Politicians, other than other people, find it hard, it seems to me, to kind of get that. And then the second problem, um, and I'm taking a risk myself, I'm afraid is journalists. Because one of the other issues is that I think journalists are, system- are systematically hostile to deliberation. They don't report it properly. And I think it's because they feel threatened by it. Because I think they think it, it somehow undermines the role they've got as the intermediators between the public and policymakers. And so even something like the Citizens' Assembly that was recently undertaken on climate change here in the UK, brilliant process, it really didn't get reported very well at all. And so part of the process by which the recommendations influence the policymakers is that the media take them seriously and kind of challenge the politicians to say, what are you going to do about this? But that doesn't happen a great deal because because journalists like adversarialism. They like rows, and the idea of ordinary citizens sitting around tables having civilized conversations, it's not, well, you know, the number of of TV producers who said to me, well, that's a bit boring, isn't it? You know, how do I make that interesting to my viewers? So very, very long question, Graham, very short (laughs) reply. Am I right that these issues of the kind of nuance of we'll take it seriously, although we might not do it, and the lack of engagement of the mainstream media are part of the problem? Uh, yes and yes, thank you. That's <laughs> how we'll go forward, folks. I will make long speeches, and my experts are simply required to agree with me. Panty, I'm sure you will not. Uh, you will not succumb to to, uh, to, to that. Uh, Panty, you you look at a, a wider range of ways of engaging the public than the ones that, that, that Claudia described. So I'm interested in your response to her presentation, but also like Graham, a kind of reflection on, on, on your own work.
1: Yeah, thank you, um, an excellent presentation and, and really appreciate your uh, comments, Graham. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I do look at a wider range and I work on a wi- wider range, but I'm also very envious. I think of a lot of colleagues um, in the UK, in Europe, in you know my home country of Canada, that get to work on deliberative processes. Um, so I'm based in Brooklyn, New York, and we are exactly twenty eight days, um, four weeks from the 2020 elections. Um, the us. is now being described um, rightly as a democratic dumpster fire, and, um, and I think we can all see why. Um, but I think that you know to me, just stepping back for a minute, I think democracy is often described as a continuum on whether or not it meets basic criteria, free and fair elections, rule of law, legitimate opposition, active participation of people, on and on. And so when we talk about democratic backsliding, we're usually talking about what's happening along this continuum. Um, And as we all know, there's many threats to US democracy right now, extreme polarization, growing economic inequality, um, excessive executive power, but I also see it more as a sort of two by two, you know, with actually like a vertical y-axis here. And I think usually what we talk about when we talk about policymaking, politics, democracy, is we're usually looking at the top, you know, um, where there is a, you know, historically, um, his, historically there's economic power and, and greed, frankly, concentrated in our political class. And so we're in this deeply polarized moment at the top that, yes, the media sort of feeds into where the two political parties are really locked in this like life and death battle where every single issue turns into this high stakes showdown where each side is trying to destroy the other but then where i spend a lot of my time and what i think is actually more interesting is what we call quote unquote at the bottom terrible phrase but anyway where resources are much more dispersed and much more scarce but where generosity and creativity are abundant. And this is often in our communities. And so while there's a lot that's damning about US democracy right now, we should remember America has always been deeply flawed as many were denied rights from the very beginning. And so many would say we've always been in an emergency. COVID has really fueled this fire, you know, exacerbating the racial, economic, and partisan fault lines. And so we have really big questions looming right now here, you know, and as with everywhere, how do we recover? I think everyone loves the phrase, how do we build back better? And how do we not just return to this unjust normal and reimagine what society could look like? And so I think what's really striking about the presentation is that, Right now, there are countless task forces and working groups and commissions um, we're talking to and serving on and advising many of these. But to be totally honest, most of these are staffed at the very top by government officials and appointees and billionaires in many cases. Um, in U.S., we have Bill Gates that's going to come and help us reimagine education. And we have Eric Schmidt, uh, former Google CEO, and now surveillance state lobbyist, um, helping us reimagine New York State. And this is insanity. (laughs) The people that got us into this mess will not be the one to get us out. And so we know we need democracy beyond the ballot box. We know we need ways to bring in different and representative voices to decision making because our communities and our people are smart. They're resilient. They're creative. They're just so damn under-resourced. And so, you know, given the time, space and opportunity, they will make the right decisions because they feel, see and experience the pain of injustice in a poor policy every single day and pain that many in the decision making classes don't. And so I believe that the deliberative processes that Claudia describes are really excellent paths to bringing them in and to centering lived experience and expertise in taking these difficult decisions, especially around questions of justice and of equity, because these are the values-based decisions that we're we're all sort of grappling with right now. Um, And the last point on the media (laughs) is, I believe that big media is in bed with big corporates, in bed with big governments, and I think they've been telling people for so long that policymaking is something you couldn't possibly understand. Governance is too complicated. It happens in London, it happens in DC, it happens in Geneva. So you just come out and vote every four years, six years, whatever. And in the meantime, you pay attention to Brad and Angelina or the Kardashians, you know, and you do your democratic duty, you know, just by voting. But there's so much political theater and our legislative processes are so captured. And so wouldn't we all love policy debates that are facilitated in the way that these deliberative processes are, you know? Why don't we enforce active listening instead of just listening to develop a rebuttal? Why don't we encourage critical thinking um, versus just, you know, opportunistic like gotcha searching? And how do we foster respect versus mockery of one another? Um, and it it, it it just strikes me that a key potential of all of this could really be how do we actually, you know, develop public engagement and understanding of policymaking um, and how it happens. And it can really be a tool for learning to say that politics doesn't have to be policy. Um, But I absolutely agree with Graham that this sort of crashing of the deliberative wave with, you know, policy institutions, that's a tension that I don't think we've, as I understand, we have figured out yet. Because power likes to hold on to power, you know, and I think in the US, we're seeing some of the sort of demographics of who's in the political class changing. You know, we have our beloved bartender from the Bronx, AOC, you know, soon joining her. We have Cory Bush, a Ferguson-made activist and single mom Um, in my community, Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. We're sending a 33-year-old gay, vegan, socialist um, public school teacher to state senate. And so that is changing. But in the meantime, how do we actually get politicians to accept the decisions that are coming out of these processes and this is a question that I you know would love to discuss with the group how do we make these binding um and yeah so those are some of my observations
2: uh, brilliant panthea before I go back to Claudia and ask what, what that that question I mean it seems to me that there is only really one role for the United States in the modern world and that is to make British people feel less bad about being British <laughs> um, and so the reason I kind of say that is is you look from here, anyway, hopelessly divided, not just politically, but on the streets, in communities. Mm-hmm. Talk about, have you used these methods, and have you seen them overcome this view? And is it an exaggerated view that it isn't just the politicians in America who are divided, but there is a really deep and profound polarization on the streets, as it were? Um.
1: I think that is true. I also think that is overstated. Um, I think that the news media has incentive, has business incentive to really um, help us to 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 otherwise one another, to help us see each other as, um, you know, to point fingers and to really sow divisiveness and to sow hate. Um, you know, I am in a community here in Brooklyn that is, um, that is rapidly gentrifying, um, historically black. And um, I've seen a lot of work on the streets, in communities, through mutual aid and other efforts where there has been a fair amount of tension um, along class lines, around sort of racial lines. Um, And yet I have also seen people come together and work them out through actually many of the methods, though folks wouldn't describe them as such, that we read about in the report you know, maybe I'm naive. I believe that human beings are inherently good. Um, My training is to study humans and I think humans are inherently good. I think we are fed um, garbage that helps us think otherwise. And so I see actually a lot of work in communities around people that recognize that they have been taught To hate one another, uh, taught that a ruling class should actually, you know, of newly enlightened individuals should bestow empathy on one another, Um, but we don't, you know, people don't need empathy, they need solidarity, they need to work together, and I've seen great examples of that in communities um, that I've been working in.
2: So Claudia, I mean, back to you, Uh, I mean, just on, on Pantia's final point there, I mean, it seems to me the thing we always need to emphasize, those of us who are fans of deliberation, is that you know, our representative democratic processes and the media reporting that goes around them is actually designed to increase uh, division. That's the whole point of them. You know, in the UK, you, know, you have the government, and you have the opposition and the job of the opposition is to make the government look as bad as possible and the job of the government is to make the opposition look as bad as possible so and and we know that social media as Pansy has been talking about you know those technology platforms are similarly designed to make us uh, angry towards our anyone who disagrees with us to focus on the point of disagreement and the simple point about deliberation is that it is a context in which people are encouraged to understand each other, to listen to each other. And surprise, surprise, when you put people in that context, they almost always behave incredibly well, and they almost always come to incredibly sensible solutions, and they almost always, at the end of it, say, you know, I quite enjoyed that. So sorry, that's my little speech. But Claudia, the point I want to bring, come back to you is the point that both Graham and Panthea raised, which is the preparedness of institutions for deliberation. And I wondered, Claudia, because you've got this fantastic kind of global gaze Can you tell us anything about what you think are the characteristics of the public institutions which are ready to use deliberation the right way? That understand that nuance I was talking to Graham about earlier.
0: You know, I think those are all really, really great points, and I I think it's a. I'm glad you used the word design because the these are design decisions with design impacts of uh, incentivizing. Uh, disagreement over finding common ground. You know, this culture of debate is something that we have found so ingrained in politics and policymaking. And I think the institutions where we're seeing some of the biggest shift, um, it has been led, I think, by some of the individuals who have uh, experienced, I think, the power and the benefits of public deliberation, helping them to solve certain problems better. Uh, because I think one of the things that we need to emphasize here is we're not just talking about, you know, trying to bring more public deliberation into politics and democracy just for the sake of an innovation or doing something different. It's for the sake of, on the one hand, yes, increasing trust between people, between people and government, but also leading to a better way of taking public, collective decisions that affect our lives. Um, and using deliberative processes, especially on those kind of tricky, sometimes controversial issues where it's hard to, you're never going to satisfy anybody. So the challenge is more finding, you know, where's the middle ground and the common ground between people that The politicians and the senior civil servants that have been involved in these processes around these tricky issues have found that actually this has been a way to help them be able to take action, to do something, to have the legitimacy and the credibility uh, to make those tough choices um and so i think that's also why there's been a little bit of a knock-on effect of why we see lots of examples in some countries and not as many yet in in others because in those countries where there's been you know one process that has happened there's often a knock-on effect of either that politician is being like oh that's actually been great and doing it again for another topic or other politicians saying like oh that helped them you know, be able to advance on climate action or, you know, around that really tricky infrastructure decision, you know, maybe we should do the same for the same kind of problem we're doing here. Um, so I think there's a little bit of, of that and, and the culture change, which is something that just, you know, it takes a bit of time. It, it, it's a bit of a mentality shift that's needed in terms of what is the role of politicians and civil servants today. Um, and because I think, I mean, Panthea raised a really challenging point earlier about this notion of binding recommendations. I think there's a little bit of tension within the broader community around participatory and deliberative democracy actually about where they stand on, on that topic. Because on the one hand, you know, this is a, a complement to representative democracy. Matthew, as you were saying earlier, ultimately, it's the, you know, the people who have the responsibilities to take decisions are still the ones who have to take the decisions and have the responsibility to, to act on them to deal with the repercussions and so on. But as Panthea was saying, that still doesn't actually change the power dynamic. Um, And I don't know, I'm speaking from the point of view of the OECD, so I'm not going to take an official position on on this right now, but I think that it's really an important debate to be having about, you know, what is the role of, of these sorts of processes, especially going further, and I think at least one way, you know, thinking about the future and the trajectory of how we could you know enhance that culture change but also enhance that or ch- start to change that longer term relationship between governments and citizens is through the institutionalization of these deliberative processes um, so that they become a more common thing like that' it 's every single ministry that for certain types of, of decisions needs to have a deliberative process before they can actually act that you know different levels of government are doing them so it becomes something that you know every one of us once in our lives or perhaps invited. To be part of this, um, that at least, even if it remains advisory, can still have that change, that impact on the change of the relationship. And perhaps eventually, we might be having a different debate around binding recommendations. But I think today, we don't have the legitimacy around the kinds of recommendations that come out of it for them to be considered binding.
2: So, so, Claudia, I just want to ask you a very boring, nerdy question because I'm a boring nerd. And, and then I want to take that point and give it back to Panther and Graham before I ask you all one final question. Uh, before we, we, we close, I could discuss this for 12 hours. Um, uh, the, the nerdy question, Claudia, is in the last few months, we've had to do all this all online. Now, it seems to me the mm-hmm. big advantage of online deliberations is it's much cheaper. <laughs> you don't have to give people sandwiches or book a room or pay people's transport or all of that. Is it as good, though, Claudia? Is online deliberation as good? Or is the loss of face-to-face contact and the you know, signals that we give each other when we're in the room together, does is that, is that, is that damage the kind of psychological and emotional elements of deliberation?
0: I mean, for me, and I know there's a debate around this in the community, but I think it's less good. I think perhaps maybe less good is not the right way to phrase it. I think it's different. The the expectations of what is possible online just have to be different because obviously part of, uh, I would say, the magic of what makes a deliberative process work is actually that in-person element. It's by spending time physically with people that we build trust between one another and it's only by starting to build a bit of trust that you're able to get to some sense of common ground on these tricky, usually dividing issues. I mean, for many reasons, I think that the, the online just doesn't compare. Like, you can't replicate that, that trust that gets built be, between people. Um, but,
2: but maybe it's another tool in the toolkit, given that it's given that it's cheaper and easier to do. But I, yeah, I,
0: and I mean, we have to, you know, we still have to be engaging people in a meaningful way in these circumstances today. So I think it's still better than doing, than doing nothing. I think we just need to adapt to how we're doing things, though, and adapt the expectations of what is possible at the end of such a process as well, though.
2: So Panthea and Graham, I want to ask you a question and and then a specific question. Now I'm going to turn to an enormously huge question for all of you that you all have one minute to answer at the end. But uh, Panthea, this point about people accepting that a deliberative process or participative process isn't binding, um, but is there to inform decision makers. Now, in my experience of these processes, people accept it. People are fine about it. They kind of recognise it. But do you think... Do you think that's unrealistic? Do you think that until these processes feel binding, citizens will be sceptical about them and think they're just like all the other bloody consultations, which they get inveigled into participating in, which don't contribute anything?
1: Ooh, good question. I try not to speculate, um, uh, because part of my job is to spend a lot of time talking with people to understand, uh, you know, where they're coming from on this. So I can, I can, I I can extrapolate based on sort of what what I've seen in in other participatory processes. Um, I think it's going to be a big challenge, um, to be honest now, uh, you know, Claudia and Graham have so much more experience, um, on, on, uh, deliberative processes, but, you know, uh. Claudia has been an amazing ally in um, supporting me lately in um, trying to discuss and negotiate um, a citizens' assembly on a really sort of big thorny policy question in a major U.S. city. And one of the things that we are hearing um, from the um, from the mayor is that um, you know, basically from the top, we're hearing that. It is going to be difficult to uh, determine how to invest resources or sort of get behind uh, this question and this assembly and what's going to come out of it if we don't know what's going to come out of it. So, you know, maybe we'll run the process, but then we'll see what we do about it um, once it comes out. And I think what then happens is for me and others, we have to take the decision around whether or not we actually want to invest in this. Because uh, the topic here is one of the, um, you know, sort of thorniest and fieriest um, political debates or, or, you know, social debates happening here right now. And if we say, you know, we invest, you know, a year and a half into this process, and then afterwards we get, you know, $2 million invested into, you know, making some cosmetic changes. Does that, is that actually going to further disillusion communities um, and further disillusion people that have been, you know, recruited into participating now? It could just be the issue, the climate, the current sort of place and time, um, but that is a risk that I think myself and many others are just perhaps not willing to take at this point. Um, so I can only speak to my experience, um, but I think, uh, yeah, because so, frankly, well, please,
2: it's that, well, I mean that, that that's really fascinating, Matthew. Sorry to, 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 to cut no. across you, but, but you, you, that's a real challenge. I think for what, what what you say is a real challenge, and I think that. Sometimes people like me think, well, deliberation's so lovely that citizens will be so pleased about it that if it doesn't in the end happen, oh, well, it was still great. And I think you're, you're giving us a good reality check there. Graham, you were nodding while Panthea was speaking. What's your view about this kind of balance, which is that if we make deliberative processes binding, politicians will never agree to them. But if they're not reasonably binding, citizens will say, well, what a waste of time that was. Yeah, I, I yeah. yeah.
3: I think you have really hit on a real challenge here, which again, I think relates to the relationship between public authority and the, the participatory process. That lack of confidence at the moment in, the path, in public institutions to take these things seriously, I think, is a, is a serious concern. That, I mean, there are examples, and I'm sorry, I crashed, I crashed out earlier thanks to, thanks to the uh, interweb, but the, um, the, there is an example, and I don't know if Claudia mentioned it, in Poland where... Um, Uh, the the activist Marcin Gerwin only runs um, citizens' assemblies or citizens' panels with mayors if they agree that on issues where there's 80% support within the assembly, that they will implement it. And they don't know beforehand what those decisions are going to be. And and they've run three or four processes like that. And there is some evidence to say that Gdansk has much better flood defences now than it would have done if they hadn't followed that process. So there are examples where actually... um, if you like, enlightened and progressive leaders have looked at this and said, yes, I am going to trust this process. So, so I can see, I, I, I haven't seen anyone in the UK being willing to give them that kind of empowerment. But what I have, and at that point, I think like Panthea has just said, you've got to make, it's a judgment call. And I think people like myself and people like Involve and people like the democratic society who run these things in the UK, they're constantly making these judgment calls because they don't want to run a process where, you know, they've taken these citizens through this amazing process, and then nothing happens. So in a sense, they've got to look in the eyes of the people who are commissioning them and try and judge whether they're taking this seriously. But I go back to my earlier point, which is, we need to think carefully, we need to spend as much time designing the implementation, designing what comes out the other end of this, thinking, working with the authority to think, how are we going to respond to this, this set of recommendations, this output, as we do on how do we design the actual deliberative process itself? And so that's the work we've got to do. And, and that's the bit where that, that kind of what, we, what is often referred to, that coupling of the deliberative process and the sort of bureaucratic and representative process. That's where we need to do the work. And we need to find ways, if people aren't willing to have this stuff as binding, that actually it's taken seriously. And I know also citizens are willing to have things not implemented if they're given a bloody good reason why. And I yep. think that's, the, if, you can, if, they, if you can close the circle, then I think that's okay. But people won't be happy if they do all this work, work and it is a lot of work, and then find that it's not taken, yeah. well, it's, hmm. not, it's not dealt
2: with respectfully. Yeah, and obviously managing people's expectations is a really important part of that. But I love the Gdansk example. and. You know, one of the things that's so exciting about this conversation is that you know this is an evolving area. So much of our democratic architecture feels like it was designed two hundred years ago, and you keep because yeah, it up, was. You know, because it was. You know, this stuff is like you know it's changing, and I love the idea of saying, "Well, no, it's not binding," but you know, if nearly everybody agrees, it that's a, that's that's fascinating. Now, last I think, sorry,
0: can I can I just come in very very quickly very on quick. that? No, I just want to say that I think what should be binding is the requirement for a response. Yeah, and this is what we've put into the OECD good practice principles actually so it's not that you have to accept it but you have to respond
2: yeah okay got it um last question which uh, you you're gonna have a minute each to answer which is perfectly reasonable because it's a very simple question um i did my annual lecture a few weeks ago on on kind of looking at liberal democracy and Try and develop a new a new defense of it and one of my respondents and you can watch this event on the rsa website was um uh, the a, a columnist and writer Nezri malik who i re- respect enormously. And i said to nesrine in the discussion um and, and she's a, a left activist as, as well as a writer uh i said you know in liberal democracy liberal democracy has never been more friendless you know it's friendless on the populist right and it's kind of quite friendless now on the activist left as well because People say, look, the origins of liberal democracy, the hypocrisy of liberal democracy, the way that liberal democracy is put up with structural inequality and oppression. Uh, and so I said to her, you know, as someone who still kind of wants to defend liberal democracy, I said, do, do you think it can be saved? And Nezrin's reply was, was basically, she said, the work that liberal democracy would have to do to save itself is beyond it which I found a kind of brilliant, but really rather chilling kind of answer. So, you know, I guess the question I want to ask each of you in your kind of 90 seconds is can deliberation and other robust methods of citizen engagement, uh, can they be part of saving liberal democracy? I mean, I, I don't think liberal democracy can be saved without them. But do you think with them we can reverse a trend that has been going on now for 20 years, which is public disillusionment with the very ideas of liberal democracy? Um, Graham, and then Panthea, and then Claudia, you can have the last word. Graham first. Okay. I'm an academic, so I'd need to, we need to talk about what you mean by liberal
3: democracy. Oh. So I'm going <laughs> to, I know, sorry. Um, but what I'm going to say is I think what, deliberation can do one of two things. It can be a sticking plaster for a democracy that is, that is dying, or it can be a way of us, a part of a way of, way of us thinking about a new way of doing democracy, new ways of doing democracy. And I think that it can, it, it can be part of the democracy that we wish to be part of.
2: Brilliant. Panthea?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, I think to me what's striking about deliberative democracy processes is, uh, yes, the deliberation. And I I love to sort of nerd out on design processes and facilitation and how to have conversation and disagreements. But I think what's actually really powerful about it and why it can um, be certainly part of the solution is Um, is actually how it brings together uh, ideologically diverse, um, politically diverse individuals. I think that's actually, to me, at least uh, the magic part, because I think, you know, uh, democracy and politics have been captured by certain castes, by, uh, as Isabel Wilkerson sort of terms it, by certain, you know, political classes, whatnot. Um, And I think that actually is, you know, perhaps what Nazarene was referring to you know, I think the people that got us into the mess will not get us out. And to me, what is um, the most potent and exciting about this is how we bring in diverse voices, build up trust between us, and show that actually we ourselves do have the answers if we are given a chance.
2: Brilliant, brilliant, thank you. And Claudia?
0: Well, I'm going to continue the slightly optimistic trend in responding to this question because I also fundamentally do have a belief that in the long run, and again, emphasizing this point about if we institutionalize public deliberation, so it becomes something that is a normal part of how democracy functions and it's everybody at some point in their lives, who has a chance to, on an ongoing basis, be involved in in these sorts of processes and knowing that other people like them are also involved, that I think we start to change things. Because the research I mentioned about the impact it has on people's sense of agency and political efficacy, I think is super important. It touches on, you know, it's a way of trying to strengthen that foundation of democracy as well. It's not just the institutions that matter. Uh, If you don't have a citizenry that has agency, that is active, you know, you're not going to have the people who are there to defend the institutions as well. And the final thing is, I think that, in a way, these deliberative processes are also strengthening representative democracy in the sense that they also extend the privilege of representation to a much larger and also a much more diverse group of people uh, because when you're when you're part of one of these deliberative processes you're not there to just give your individual opinion you're there to really put yourself in other people's shoes to work together collectively and I think that's a really profound difference and a profound experience uh, for people so I think we need to 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 extend this privilege as much as we can. And I think by doing that, there is some chance of, of saving liberal democracy uh, as, as we know it.
2: <laughs> thank you. Well, uh, we, I, it says in front of me, we could go on all day. I could certainly go on all day, but um, we have to wrap up now. The last uh, 45 minutes have been blissful for me because this is my favorite subject. Claudia, Panty and Graeme, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Anybody who's been watching this, and who still doesn't recognize the importance of deliberation and other robust forms of participation to the future of, of our societies. Well, you obviously just have not been listening at all, I can say. To find out more about each of our speakers' work in this area, you can follow Claudia's work with the OECD on innovative citizen participation. Um, I'm sure it's all over the OECD website. Um, Pancia's coalition building projects with Reboot uh, in the US, similarly, and find out more about them. And also look out for Graham's next book, which is called Can Democracy Safeguard the Future? Graham, I'm sure you'll come on my podcast to discuss that. There are also plenty of ways to get involved with the RSA's work on deliberative democracy. We have our AGM uh, this week, and that's a 250-year-old process, but it will feature an RSA fellow talking about the initiatives she's taken on deliberative democracy. So I don't just believe this stuff. We actually... Uh, do it. So check out the RSA website and look at the stuff we're trying to do around deliberative democracy. Uh, All that's left for me to say is thank you again to Claudia, Graham and Panthea and thank you all for watching.
3: Thanks for listening. If you like this
0: podcast head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.